Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace, your love, your mercy, how you minister to us each and every day. You supply our needs physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And Father, you, you hold us accountable for the lives which we live. We're so thankful, Lord, that uh, we are, are not people drawn into a worship that is full of, of mysticism and of uh, sacrifices and the things which uh, cause so many people of the world to live in anxiety and fear. But we have a faith that is based on a single sacrifice that was made once and for all. A faith based in a God who loves us and who desires to minister to us and through us in ways that we can't even imagine. And Father, I pray that we will be able, through our study of the Word, to plumb the depths of the love of God more than ever before, and that you will continue to work in our hearts to make us obedient to the Word and to live in accordance with uh, the plan that you have set before us. Lord, we are your agents of blessing in this world. And I pray, Father, that you will keep us clean and pure before you, that we might serve you effectively. I thank you for this time we can share together this morning. Ask you to guide us in under our understanding of your word. And throughout this Sunday school this morning, may you be present in each and every class. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 24th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, I'd like to read beginning at verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But the elders, he said, to the elders, he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. As I've noted to you before, Moses spent many, many days climbing and descending this mountain. He has met with God on many instances on this very mountain. And we have seen that he just was ordered by God to take the elders of Israel onto the mountain. And they saw the vision of God. And now God said, leave the elders behind. You take Joshua, he'll go partway up the mountain, and I want you to come up to me because I am now going to give to you the law which I have already given to you orally, I am now going to give it to you on stone. And so Moses obediently went up the mountain. We have noted particularly the information given to us in verses 16 and verse 17 that the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And, and this cloud covered the mountain for six days before Moses went into the cloud. He was on the mountain for six days. 
And then he went into the cloud on the seventh day. And in verse 17, to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And I was talking about that a little bit last week at the end of class. God had manifested himself, you remember, in a very small little bush burning on the mountainside a year or more before this time. And Moses had met God at that burning bush. Now Moses is meeting God and the whole top of the mountain is on fire. A great conflagration roared on the top of Mount Sinai. And it was not for no reason that that happened. God is able to manifest himself with or without such display. God, remember, manifested himself or spoke to Elijah in a still, small voice. But here God is manifesting himself to Israel so these people will not forget they have met God here. God wants us to nail down those times when we've had a, an encounter with him whereby he's changed our lives. Don't forget these things. And so God is making it very difficult for them to forget it as they watch this. I mean, remember, the whole mountain is quaking and rocks are probably rolling down it. And, and this, this thing is a roaring inferno with the smoke, we're told in this passage, rising up to heaven. Nothing was burning. There's no evidence on the top of what is believed to be today Mount Sinai of any great inferno that was up there. This was a supernatural fire. It was not burning up the rocks. There, weren't any, there was no forest up there to burn. It was God simply manifesting himself in this great fire, just as the bush burned without being consumed. So the top of the mountain was a raging inferno. And I noted last time at the very end of class that this uh, fire of God's presence portrays many things to us. For one thing, it portrays God's judgment. We looked in, back into Genesis and saw the, uh, the great fire that came down out of heaven that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we looked in the other end of the scripture to the book of Revelation and the great fire that rages in what is called the lake of fire, which is the second death. So we discover that in this fire of God, there is the portrait of judgment. But secondly, there is also the portrait of that which refines and that which purifies. Certainly the fire of judgment will fall and the great lake of fire will burn in judgment. But there is a purifying fire for the righteous, a purging of the dross of the fleshliness and sin to which we so easily succumb. A couple of passages of scripture I'd like to read from the New Testament uh, concerning this. First Peter chapter 1, a very, very familiar passage which probably you've read many times. 1 Peter chapter 1, reading at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The salvation of our souls is the product of God's purging fire. 
We believe by faith, and that results in eternal life. But as we walk in this planet, God is in the process of purifying us, and if necessary, through trials. And I think most of us have discovered that it's necessary, because I think there's no one in this room who can't describe a trial they've been through probably relatively recently. And it's not the same for all, obviously. For some it's physical, for some it's spiritual, for some, but it all results in the same thing. A work of God that we might become people who are molded in His image. Gold refined in the fire of trial. In 1 Corinthians, this, this theme is um, carried on too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, again, a very familiar passage, beginning at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if a man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or... St <laughs> got the, new, the King James Version in my mind here, word, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. In each man's, if any man's work, which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. God wants all of us to produce gold, silver, and precious stones, as it were, by our faithfulness to Him. But there are those who become believers who sometimes deviate from the path, and, and they sow what we call in the world, I suppose, wild oats, or whatever. The Scripture calls it wood, hay, or stubble, or wood, hay, or straw. And that will be destroyed. But if the person is a true believer, he will be saved, but as by fire, and as another passage says, by the skin of his teeth. What this shows is that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by grace, by faith. But our faith ought to produce good works. But sometimes our good works <laughs> aren't so good. So God's purifying fire is there to show the truth, the reality of who we are and what we need to be. And of course that fire comes to us not only through trials, but really through this book. This book's like a blowtorch, if you can just view it that way. And any, any, anything we've got up there, our, our little uh, straw man that we've got there to try to convince God we're really good people, just go, you know, it's gone. And God says, this is who you really are. The scripture tells us, as you well know, that the word of God cuts to the very joint and marrow of who we are. And, and so everything is laid bare before God. There's no use having a facade, a mask, because God is not impressed. He has his refining fire, not only so that we will be changed, but so that we'll really understand who we are in his presence. Also, I think we discover as we visualize this fire raging on the top of Mount Sinai, that it gave off an intense light. I, I think we're all familiar also with the first passage in the book of the Gospel of John. 
which tells us something about the character, the nature of God and of Christ, who is also God. In Gospel of John, chapter 1, the first five verses, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Not a God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses have tried to mutilate this particular passage. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overpower it. God is the light of this world. Without the light of God, this world would dwell in eternal darkness. Christ came to bring that light into the world. And it's an intense light. The light of the gospel of Christ. In that 16th verse that we read in Exodus, it states flat out that the glory of the Lord rested on the top of Mount Sinai. How do we know the glory of the Lord was there? Because of the fire that was burning. And how do we know the fire was burning? Or how did they know the fire was burning? Because it gives off light, right? I'm sure if there was a blind Israeli there, they, they couldn't see the fire. They couldn't see the glory of the Lord. But those who were sighted, which we trust was most, could see this brilliant light coming down from the mountain, this intense light that manifested the presence of God. And you go through Scripture and you find how many times is the presence of God manifested by bright light, brilliant light of God's presence. And, and we're told in 1 Timothy, I love this passage in 1 Timothy, having to do with a description of uh, our Lord. 1 Timothy beginning at verse 13, 6.13 I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Who is this? He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. <laughs> and we read a passage like that and, and many other passages which tell us that no man has seen God at any time, and yet we say, well, I thought those 70 just had a vision. They were up on the mountain and they saw God in his heaven above the great sapphire, lapis lazuli. And Ezekiel talks about it, and Isaiah talks about it. But what did they see? They saw a theophany. They saw a manifestation of God veiled so they could see him. Veiled. What this scripture here is saying, that Jesus Christ and God the Father dwell in unapproachable light, which no man has ever seen, because no man in this flesh can watch or look upon the glory of God unveiled, because he would be vaporized. Uh, if, if such were to be. So it's a veiled presence of God. He's manifesting his glory in an inferno burning on the mountain, which is giving off light, but not the intense light of his total unveiled presence. 
which would vaporize this whole world and destroy every ounce of evil within it. What's interesting is the terms that are used sometimes relative to this. In verse 16 of Exodus 24, it says, the glory of God rested upon the top of Mount Sinai. Rested. The Hebrew word for rested is shikan, which means to dwell. So God's presence was dwelling on the top of Mount Sinai. But from this word has come a word that's popularly used as Christianese. And that is the term Shekinah. You've, you've all heard it. People talk about the Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah means that which dwells. Referring to this passage, at least in part, with the God, glory of God dwelling on top of Mount Sinai. But the, the word Shekinah is not a biblical word. You will not find it anywhere in the Bible. Uh, it comes from the Jewish Targums. The, targ, the word Targum means translation in the, means the word translation in the Aramaic language. And what the Targums were, were translations of the Old Testament into two versions of, of Aramaic. Aramaic was the, the lingua franca of the Near, Near Eastern world before and at least in part after the conquest of Rome. And Aramaic was a derivative of the, um, well, it was the ancestor to, at least in part, modern Hebrew and modern Arabic and, and so forth. There were two versions of it. One spoken in Palestine and one spoken over in Mesopotamia. And so the Targums were loose translations of the Old Testament into those two versions of, uh, of Aramaic. And for a long time they were only oral. But about the time the Septuagint was written down, which was in the second century before Christ, the Targums began to be written also. And so they were ultimately all written down in... Uh, in Hebrew or in Aramaic, so they could be more widely understood. Well, the um, Targums are actually paraphrases. Are you familiar with the Living Bible? Uh, there was a Bible called the Living Bible. The Living, you have it. The Living Bible is not a translation, it's a paraphrase of Scripture. And that's what the Targums are. They are a paraphrase of Scripture, not a literal uh, translation. And the word Shekinah comes from the Targums. And so it is an interpretation of this light or this manifestation of, of God. And there's not a thing wrong with the word, but I'm just saying that's its origin. It really describes, I, I think, uh, God's manifestation of himself. Let's look at a couple of passages where I think the term Shekinah could have been used. Referring to God, you remember Paul got knocked off his donkey on the way to Damascus. Well, he talks about that several times in the book of Acts. And in the 26th chapter of Acts, he gives us a particularly interesting description of it, which he doesn't give every time he talks about this uh, event. But in Acts chapter 26, uh, reading down, beginning at verse 12, he's talking, he's, he's before Agrippa, the king, you know, defending himself. And he says, while thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And, of course, Paul repeats the fact that that's really when he became converted. Who are you, Lord? 
But you'll notice he says, I saw a light. Remember when it happened? He says it happened at midday. So the sun is at the top. It's at the zenith, shining in its glory. And yet he says that the light that I saw was brighter than the midday sun. So the glory of God, the Shekinah, if you will, here, is, is coming down from the face of Christ in greater brilliance than even the sun. And that was veiled, even though it blinded Paul for three days. And then in the book of Revelation, we see another example of this in John's vision. John is about to be instructed on giving a message to the seven churches of, of uh, Western Asia Minor. And, and there is this vision which he has, beginning at verse 12. Revelation 1.12. He, he's heard this word. It says, write to these seven churches. And so John says, And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a, flaming, a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze, when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. John turned and he saw a theophany of Christ in his vision. And even in that, the face of Christ glowed like the intense sun at noonday. And that was veiled. That was veiled. Even then, as John looked upon the glory of God. I think some of us wish we could see something like that, don't we? But you know, God talks to us in the Scripture about how we having not seen, yet believe. Remember what he said to, Tim, uh, to uh, Thomas. You, you can put your hand in. And, and now you believe, but blessed are those who will believe yet will not see with their eyes anything, really, of, of God's presence or of his glory. But by faith we believe because of what God has said in his word. Why, why did God manifest himself in ways like this so many times in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament? Why did he do that? We have to remember that the people, for example, the people there at the base of Sinai looking up at the mountain, they didn't have any scripture to turn to. I mean, the man who was up on that mountain receiving the word of God was the man God would use to write the very first scripture. And so they, they, it was their experience and, and the words that they heard from God and through Moses uh, that would begin to build their faith. But they themselves saw these things to to give them foundation and root to their faith. And so it would be all the way through into the New Testament period. But after the New Testament was completed, we have the whole manifestation of God in terms of his word. And, and we don't need visions. Not that God doesn't ever give visions. He still does. But we don't need to have massive ones anyway, such as Mount Sinai or Pentecost or events such as that. Well, if we turn to the 25th chapter of Exodus, we're going to discover in the next seven chapters instruction that God gives to Moses 
concerning two major things, the tabernacle and all of its furnishings and the priesthood and all that that would mean. Moses was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. As I mentioned to you before, it didn't take 40 days and 40 nights for God to, to carve, as it were, the, the word of God on the ten, you know, the ten Commandments on stone give it to Moses. But God was given to him all the minute details that we will read in these next chapters while he was there on the mountain. Why does God give such great detail? I mean, even tells them how, as we go further on in Exodus, we'll, we'll discover that God even talks about how to make the little bases into which the, the, the uh, supporting rods would stand to hold up the walls of the tabernacle. You know, it was being made this size and with this kind of material. Why does God do that? Why does he give such intimate detail about his work, how it's to be done? And I think one of the principal answers to that question is that no work of God can be done solely through human strength and ingenuity. You and I cannot do the work of God in our own strength. And that's why so many, quote, works of God fail. Because they aren't works of God. They're people going forth, saying that they're doing this for God, but without ever checking with God first to find out if that's what He wants them to do. Or seeking His blessing. That's why we are so concerned <laughs> that you pray for us. Because I don't believe that God's work is done without prayer. And that's why it's so important that we pray for all of the various activities of this church. The services, the Sunday school classes, the Awanas ministry, and, and you name it. All the things that are done. If they're not backed with prayer, you might as well not do it. Because it's not going to accomplish anything. Because we can't do the work of God in our own strength. This tabernacle was where God's name was going to dwell. Because he had so chosen to do that. It was his touchstone on earth. It symbolized the truth that I think is so important for us to remember. That God's eternal purposes are accomplished not by our work for him, but by his work through us. That's how they're accomplished. And that's why there's a church. The church isn't here just to be a fellowship of believers. That's important. That's good. The church is here to provide the tool that God will work through to reach the world. And of course that is done in many ways. Through our outreach locally, but also through our outreach around the world. That's why we, are so, we have been so blessed, I think, to be a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. An organization which has a world view and reaches out not just to the local neighborhood, but to the far corners of the earth. There are many evangelical churches in America today, you may be familiar with some of them, that have almost no missionary outreach at all. They're just concerned about their little old pond right here, and what's going on around the world is irrelevant to them. And I don't think that's the way God wants us to be. He wants us to be world Christians, in that we're concerned about what's going on with Christians in Rwanda today, or the few that are in Mongolia today, or wherever it might be. We need to be people who concern, we pray, and, and these things are important to us. Let me read the first nine verses of chapter 25 here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me, 
From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram's skin dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so, just so, you shall construct it. God didn't say to Moses, go down there and tell the people to build me a tabernacle and let them build it however they feel like. You know, choose the leading <coughs> contractor amongst them and give him the assignment and have him build it. No, God says this is how it's to be done and this is what it's to be done with and this is what it's to look like and this is what it's to be furnished with. God leaves nothing to fortune or chance, as we would say. There really is no such thing as either fortune or chance, especially to the believer, because God has charted our lives and God has set a path before us. And God knows us, as we've read from uh, Psalm 139, He knows us from before we were even born. He knows us to the depths of our being. There is no such thing as fortune or chance for God's people. And God is not going to just let them make this tabernacle in some willy-nilly way as they, as they think it up. But He's giving them direct instructions on how to do this. But the first thing God says is take an offering. Take an offering. Some people think that's what church is all about. Just taking offerings. That's usually a uh, a non-believer's greatest excuse for not going to church. They just take offerings all the time. The only one is money, 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 money. Well, such people will use that for an excuse because they're really being cut to the quick by other things, but they don't want to deal with it, you know. So they're all hypocrites and the only one is money. That's a good way to blow it, all, blow it away. But God isn't going to say to that person when he stands before him, um, and why didn't you come to believe? Oh, well, because you're all hypocrites and, and they all they wanted is money. And God isn't going to say, oh, well, that's true. That's a real problem, wasn't it? <laughs> no. God is not going to say that. He's going to say, and what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? What did you do? God is not, you know, smoke. You can't blow smoke at God. He knows all things. God was giving the plan, but he was inviting the people to supply the material. You give to the work of God. And God will use it to build up his work, to build up his tabernacle in this particular case. But you'll notice the people were not to be coerced. Moses wasn't standing up there and harangue them and saying, look at you guys, you haven't given enough, give more, give more. No, that wasn't it. Let them give as they will. And that's the teaching of Scripture, all the way through Scripture. Give as the people wish to give. Only what they desire to give. That's the way God functions because Jesus was given as God's gift freely and he wants us to respond freely in our giving to him. Giving to God is to be done in response to his love, his grace, his mercy, his provision. We give because he loves us and because we love him in return. 
Well, the items that were to be given were listed in verse 3, uh, verses 3 to 7. We'd have a little hard time with that. Most of us probably don't have a whole lot of gold, silver, or bronze lying around. Uh, most of us don't have a great pile of purple, blue, or scarlet material. Most of us probably don't have too much goat hair around or porpoise skins. <laughs> Actually, a porpoise skin here was probably a reference to the dugong, which is a kind of a manatee. You know the manatees they keep talking about we're losing down in the south because boats keep running over them. Well, in the Red Sea, they have a sea version of that. It's called the sea cow. And uh, that's probably what this uh, refers to here, the skins, which are very tough and waterproof, uh, which were uh, used here. Quite an interesting list, isn't it? Well, we'll go into the details of it now because later when we talk about the actual construction of the tabernacle itself, we'll talk about these uh, materials in some detail. And uh, Dr. Walmark said that we may even be able to have a small model of the tabernacle available to look at at the time we do this. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, verse 10, And they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. And you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. And you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub <clears throat> at one end and one cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim will, shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned towards the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give you. And there I will meet you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Covenant, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. It's a very important piece of furniture. It did not look like the one manufactured if you saw the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. It didn't look like that. They obviously didn't bother to spend much time studying the passage of Scripture here before they manufactured their little doohickey for the, for the movie. This is the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. And therefore, it's the very first piece of furniture God describes. Now, the meaning, or, or I should say, the English word Ark, you know, Ark, we think of Ark. What's an Ark? We always think of Noah's Ark. Moses in the bulrushes in an ark. Well, you know, Moses was in the bulrushes in a basket. And Noah built this gigantic boat. The, the term ark is probably not too well used for either the boat or the basket, <clears throat> but it's very appropriate here. 
The word ark, which we use in English, comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of this scripture, where the Latin word is arca, A-R-C-A. And it's a very appropriate translation because the Hebrew word here is aron, which means chest, as in a box, you know, like a cedar chest. And that's exactly the meaning of the Latin word arca. So if we want to say Noah was floating around in a chest, I suppose that's okay. And uh, some think that the ark was built like a gigantic box or chest floating around out there and, and wasn't ship-like. And uh, how that exactly fits with uh, Moses floating around in the bulrushes, I'm not sure because I don't think that was, uh, <laughs> well, could have been rectangular, I don't know. But anyway, the, the word is very appropriate here. And we're given the dimensions here. We're told that it's two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half deep. Well, if we use the uh, most conservative definition of a cubit, that would mean that the ark was about 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. It was, it was a small thing, which tells us some other things, doesn't it? It tells us that the stone tablets that Moses came down from the mountain weren't as big as they're sometimes portrayed in some pictures, you know, big old honking things, you know, Moses, like this. They had to be relatively small to, to fit inside this, this box, this chest. Now, the King James Version here, if you have that, it tells us that the wood used was shittim. And that's because the Hebrew word here is shittah. But uh, nobody knows anything about any word, uh, wood like that. And so it's generally interpreted to be the acacia tree or acacia wood. And one of the reasons that the interpretation is used for that is that's probably the only tree that grew in the Sinai at that time. It still grows in the Sinai. It's a relatively short, kind of shrubby, thorny tree which they still use today, according to some uh, scholars anyway, that's still used today to make furniture out of amongst the Bedouin people. This chest, we're told, was to be covered with gold, hammered sheets of gold, which were to cover it inside and outside, cover this whole box, so the whole thing would be glistening gold. And that there were to be four rings made out of gold attached where the legs attached to the chest and so thus probably down on the side there, which these uh, poles were to be put through, and the poles were to cover them. Now, there's a very, very important statement here, and that is those poles were to be in those rings in perpetuity. The poles were never to be removed from the rings once they have been shoved through those rings. So whenever the ark sat in the tabernacle, it was to sit there with the poles in the rings. And the reason for that, of course, was so the poles would never get lost because that ark was never to be moved except with the poles. This brings us, and I think I'll, uh, I'll bring this to an end with this today, brings us to the importance of absolute obedience to God. When God says, do this, don't do that, he doesn't mean if you feel like it, do this. Or if it isn't too much trouble for you, don't do that. He doesn't mean that at all. He says, do this, and he means it to the very last jot and tittle of whatever he says. And it's not because God loves to be up there like some, you know, a big guy with a bullwhip beating everybody into submission for the fun of it. It's because God tells us what to do for our own good. Uh, let me just give you an example of why this is so important. You probably know the story, but if you turn to 2 Samuel... Chapter 6. 
Uh, some of us think of David as a wonderful, great king, and that he was, and that he, he lived a great life except one time he blew it with Bathsheba, and that was his big sin. Well, let me clue you. <laughs> David was a man like unto us, and David blew it a whole lot more than once or twice. Let's see how he blew it here. 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. Now David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God. Now see, up to this point, everything was wonderful. They placed the ark of God in a new cart that they might bring it to the house of Abinadab, from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. We don't have any castanets here, do we? We better get those for our service here. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, that is, outburst against Uzzah. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now David wanted to move the ark, which was the symbol of God's presence, from the house in Kirith-Jerim, where it had been, been for a long time, to Jerusalem, which he had just captured and, and made his capital. And there was not a thing wrong with that. That was good. The Philistines, remember, had captured the ark. Remember, Eli was the, was the priest, and Israel was at war with the Philistines, and they decided to take the ark of God out there to defeat the Philistines. And what happened, they got defeated, and the Philistines captured the ark. And that's another story about what happened to the Philistines, if you may remember, taking the ark around from city to city. <laughs> uh, anyway, they sent it back. And it was housed there at Kirith Jerim. And David said, okay, let's bring it up to Jerusalem. That's perfectly fine. And that's what he should have done. But he didn't pay attention to what God had said. God said, you always move the ark with Levites, consecrated Levites, and you use the poles. You don't put the thing on some cart and try to haul it off. David was doing it his way. And as a result, Uzzah died. So David had no excuse to be angry at God for the death of Uzzah. It was David's fault that Uzzah died, not God's fault. Did David learn his lesson? Well, fortunately, David learned his lesson. And we'll end with this. First Chronicles, I think it says second on your outline, but First Chronicles is correct. First Chronicles 15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Verse 13. 
Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound like you or me? Do we ever learn the hard way? You know, sometimes we brag about the fact, well, I didn't go to the University of California. I went to the University of Hard Knocks. Well, all of us have been to the University of Hard Knocks, I'm afraid. And sometimes we don't learn the truth of God except sometimes when God has to slap us upside the head. And he will do that. But he gave us the word so we do it right in the first place. David was supposed to know the word. God had commanded in Deuteronomy that every king of Israel was to sit down and write out the word of God longhand, personally, himself. So he'd have no excuse for saying, well, I didn't know what God said. You wrote it out yourself, dummy. And so he had no excuse, and yet this happened. But now, now he has learned. God expects exact obedience. He doesn't expect laziness from his people or a kind of a I'll do it my way attitude. That's what killed Cain, remember? God said do it this way, but Cain says, God should accept what I have. I mean, why shouldn't he? He didn't care what God thought. And unfortunately, we're living in a world when so many people think, I'm going to get to heaven my way. And they think God's going to be convinced about that. Unfortunately, God said there is only one way. It's called the straight and the narrow way, through which... We go by, two, by two, uh, two things enable us to stay on that route. Faith and obedience. And the two go together. You can't have faith without obedience and you won't obey without faith. And those two have to go together. And that's what David learned the hard way. Hopefully we won't all have to keep learning that the hard way, but believing the Word of God. Well, seven weeks from now, <laughs> uh, we'll pick up with the discussion of the mercy seat. It's a very, very important uh, part of the tabernacle furniture.